If you would, please take a copy of God's Word and turn to Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah chapter 5. As we continue to look through prophecy of Isaiah, the biblical prophet, the fifth gospel it's been called. And as just a reminder, sermon notes you can find in the bulletin there, uh, as well as the scripture text if you don't have a Bible with you. Isaiah chapter 5, hear now the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its edge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field until there is no more room. And you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. The Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing, surely many houses shall be desolate, large and beautiful houses without inhabitant. For ten acres of vineyard shall yield but one bath, and a homer of, of seed shall yield but an ephah. Woe to those who rise early in the morning, that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre and harp, tambourine and flute, and wine at their feasts, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of His hands. Therefore my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. Their honored men go hungry, and their multitude is parched with thirst. Therefore Sheol has enlarged its appetite and opened its mouth beyond measure. And the nobility of Jerusalem and her multitude will go down, her revelers and he who exalts in her. Man is humbled, and each one is brought low, and the eyes of the haughty are brought low. But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice. And the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. Then shall the lambs graze as in their pasture, and nomads shall eat among the ruins of the rich. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin with cart ropes, who say, let him be quick, let him speed his work, that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near, and let it come, that we may know it. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. Therefore the tongue of fire devours the stubble, and his dry grass sinks down in the flame, so their root will be as rottenness, and their blossoms go up like dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against His people and He stretched out His hand against them 
and struck them, and the mountains quaked, and their corpses were as refuse in the midst of the streets. For all this, his anger is not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. He will raise a signal for nations far away, and whistle for them from the ends of the earth, and behold, quickly, speedily they come. None is weary, none stumbles, none slumbers or sleeps, not a waistband is loose, not a sandal strap broken, their arrows are sharp. All their bows bent, their horses' hooves seem like flint, and their wheels like the whirlwind. Their roaring is like a lion. Like young lions they roar, they growl and seize their prey. They carry it off and none can rescue. They will growl over it on that day like the growling of the sea, and if one looks to the land, behold, darkness and distress, and the light is darkened by its clouds. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Grass withers, flower fades, But the word of our God stands forever. Let's ask his blessing now as we consider his word. Oh, Heavenly Father, give us ears to hear and hearts that are ready to respond to all that you have to say to us, your people. Speak to us, Lord, for your servants are listening. This we pray, Christ's name, amen. One day... God sent a prophet to confront injustice, but instead of an accusation, he was armed with a story. The prophet said there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him." Now there came a traveler to the rich man. He was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him, but he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. How would you respond to such a story? How would anyone? How did David? Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And then Nathan the prophet said to King David, the most powerful man in the land, you are the man. 2 Samuel 12, right after David's sin with Bathsheba, David sinned sexually and some have speculated that David may have broken all ten commandments in 2 Samuel 11. But how do you think David would have responded if Nathan had come with a list? Sometimes we cannot see our own sin. Sometimes we see it better in others. Sometimes we need a prophet to show us a picture of who we are or who we might become so that we can hate our sin, so that we can see our need for our Savior. Thomas Watson famously said, Until our sin be bitter, Christ will never be sweet. Until a prophet says to us, there were two men. Until he says, you were the man. Until that happens, we may not see ourselves the way God sees us. We may not see the richness, the goodness, the sweetness of God's forgiveness to sinners such as us. Years after Nathan and David, another prophet confronted a nation. Like Nathan, Isaiah decided a story. Even an epic love poem might be the best weapon. Then again, maybe we shouldn't think of it as a weapon, like a knife, more like a scalpel meant to remove a growing 
metastasizing tumor. Three points this morning. The story, the love poem comes first. First, we see the worthless wine yard. The worthless wine yard, verses 1 through 7. You can make fun of wine yard if you want, as long as you remember the point of the story. Someone wonders if Isaiah sang this song, quote, at the end of grape harvest, a traditional time for entertainment and festivities. Maybe. Maybe he wanted their inhibitions and defenses to be lowered, which explains the mood of his song. In verse 1, let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. What doesn't he say? He doesn't call the vineyard worthless yet. He's drawing them in. He doesn't identify his beloved, his wife, his God. He doesn't identify the exact vineyard, just like Nathan never identified who the rich man was in the story. Verse 2, he describes the, the sweat equity that his beloved had put into the vineyard, the care, the love. And then the mood changes into verse 2, and he, the beloved, Looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. Wild grapes. Rare Hebrew word that probably means something like stink fruit. He has their attention. Then he asks in verse 3, speaking on behalf of the Lord, his beloved, Jerusalem, Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. Who's at fault here? Verse 4, what more was there to do for my vineyard? He's, he's egging them on. Can you believe this? What should I do? Did I, the Lord, did I do something wrong with my vineyard? Was it me? Or was it the vineyard? Next, he announces the vineyard's punishment, verses 5 and 6. And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste, it shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. Who could object when the trees, the vines, they stop bearing fruit? Why would you continue to waste time and effort on them? What did this vineyard deserve? To be thrown away. Jesus tells parables like this as well. Matthew 7, 21, maybe John 15 as well, probably others. Unfruitful trees and plants, they get thrown away. Who could blame Isaiah's beloved for tearing down this worthless vineyard until they heard the identity of the vineyard, that is? Verse 7, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant Planting, And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Now my Bible's footnotes say that justice, bloodshed, righteous, outcry, that, that they sound alike in Hebrew. Here's one attempt to recreate those puns for you. Did he find right? Nothing but riot. Did he find decency? Only despair. Isaiah is... Almost done with his introduction, chapters 1 through 5. He is showing you the people whom he was called to serve. As you think about that, do you ever, do you ever despair over the state of the church, of God's people, of your church, the church as a whole, whatever it might be? Because let me cheer you up. My friend Miles likes to say, 
The world isn't going to hell in a handbasket. It already went to hell in a handbasket. It's called Genesis 3. On this side of heaven, there will always be situations that are getting better and always be other things that are getting worse. And I understand you might say, but Matt, what about Christian leaders who are falling and stumbling, some leaving the faith altogether? I mean, you remember Josh Harris just a couple years ago. Isn't it worse now? Worse than King Saul, who left the faith, who stopped listening to God, who consulted a witch, who went on a murderous rampage against his future successor? Is today worse than Israel's stink fruit? Sin and Satan never take a vacation. Not back then, not now. No vaccine to protect against him, but there is a warning against sin and Satan all over the pages of God's Word. And there is a refuge, a protector, a provider, one who calls you to rest in Him until life's storm is past. He will not shield us from every pain in this life, but He will shield us from the ultimate pain, the end. What more can He do? What more can He say? You see, the point of this story is not to say, you need to produce this much fruit in order to be safe in God's salvation. The point is God's people, both in the 8th century B.C. and now, have not produced fruit. Not enough. And we know what we deserve, what they deserve. But even now, even then, the Lord is saying, I planted you, I cared for you, and I am still here. If you will only come and walk in the light of the Lord, as it says in Isaiah 2. Isaiah sang about a worthless vineyard, wineyard. It wasn't producing grapes or wine, it was producing vinegar. And if that wasn't enough to get their attention, he was about to try another approach. After the worthless wineyard, we also see this, secondly, the warnings of woe. The warnings of woe, verses 8 to 25. Six woes in this section. Verses 8, 11, 18, 20, 21, 22. A woe is not always mean-spirited, keep in mind. It is often a lament, a cry of pity, even sadness. It's a signal of what will happen if someone does not change course. In other words, Isaiah, the one who's announcing all these woes, he loves these people. He is sick at what they're doing. He hates where they're headed. And he is doing all of this that he can to warn them. He speaks at times as if all of this is a done deal. In some ways it is. And yet some of it is meant to say this is where you are headed unless you change. Unless you repent. Jesus would say years later, Luke 13, 3, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. That was Judah and Israel's fate back then. Why? Because of the sins that God names in these six woes. Let's summarize them. Woe number one, verse eight. Woe to those who join house to house. These were greedy men who were violating God's land laws for that particular time and place, which were meant to preserve family land rights. They were buying up distressed properties. It was borderline extortion. Woe number two in verse 11. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink 
who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. Woe to the drunkards who live for drinking. This is well beyond a glass of wine with dinner every night. Alec Moitier says, it is what gets them out of bed and keeps them out of bed. Greedy for land and money. Greedy for more alcohol. Verse 12 even says, they, they love liquor more than they love the law of the Lord. Woe three. An arrogant defiance of God seen in verses 18 and 19. They, they drag their sin behind them like an ox drags a plow. And still... They dare God to judge them. Let the counsel of the Holy One draw near. Let it come that we may know it. Bob Baffert has been in the news. His horse won the Kentucky Derby. Preakness was the one that was yesterday, by the way. His horse won the Kentucky Derby, and then he, horse and trainer, I suppose, recused of performance-enhancing drugs. A drug test was failed. But... Baffert, he vehemently denied the charges. I've been framed, or something like that, he said. Now, let me be clear. Baffert may be innocent. We'll see. That's all ongoing. But he reminded me and my brother, as we were talking this week, of Lance Armstrong, cancer survivor, Nike spokesman, American hero, seven-time Tour de France winner, and cheater who dodged many accusations with strong words, personal attacks, loud words against his accusers, ruined people who told the truth until he was ruined. The volume of someone's protestations. What's the Shakespeare line? Methinks the lady doth protest too much. The volume of the protests may or may not indicate someone's innocence. And then the final three woes that we see here, they come in rapid succession. Woe number four, verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good, who try to justify evil. Woe number five, verse 21. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes, the conceited, the prideful. Woe number six, verse 22. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine, as if that were something to boast about in verse 23, it flows in and says, who acquit the guilty with a bribe. You see the connection, because of their immorality, they become unjust. In drunken stupor, they let the guilty go free for a bribe. In their own wisdom, verses 18 through 22 says they reject God's wisdom. In their own wisdom, they become fools, unjust, and while these are warnings for us, for them back then, they were also, in a sense, sentences, punishments for those who did not turn from their sin. The greedy who buy up houses and fields, it says they'll be desolate. Their harvest will be a tenth of what they planned in verses 8 through 10. The ones who live to drink will be, verse 13 says, parched with thirst en route to exile. They will dry out, sober up the hard way. The defiant, self-justifying, conceited crooks of verses 18 through 22. They'll meet an angry, defiant God who hates sin, who must punish sin. Verse 25, therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against His people and He stretched out His hand against them 
and struck them, and the mountains quaked, and their courses were as refuse in the midst of the streets. For all this his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Ooh, that may or may not sound comforting to you. But I ask you, if you saw someone commit these sins, what would you want to happen? Would you want their evil to continue unchecked? Wouldn't you want someone to stop them? You know, 2 Samuel 11, David sleeps with Bathsheba. He runs roughshod over God's law, over God's servant Uriah, also known as Bathsheba's husband. And the scariest part is he almost gets away with it. The narrator is very detached. But the last half verse says, But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. 2 Samuel eleven twenty seven. The next thing you read is Nathan the prophet arriving with a story. As my old pastor used to say, God never lets Christians sin successfully. Either he will judge them to exalt his justice and holiness to show others that God sees all, or he will convict them, cause them to repent, to exalt his mercy and his grace while still maintaining his justice, his righteousness. Still maintaining his justice and righteousness because God will still punish the sin we repent of. He just won't punish us if we're in Christ, not ultimately. He will lay those sins on another prophet whose message was unwelcome. You know, at one time, wrath made people squeamish. Not so much anymore. People love wrath. We, we might love it too much. We are ready to hurl wrath at anyone who disagrees with us. Just, just check Twitter. Wrath is trending 24-7. But God's wrath is better because God himself offers us refuge from his wrath, from his justly deserved wrath. He offers us refuge in Christ, a warrior who promises to fully and finally defeat sin and death, but but not yet. But before we talk more about warriors, let me ask you something. What did God's people, this vineyard, what do they deserve in light of all this? What do we deserve in light of all this? Do you ever see yourself inching closely to any of these sins? Or maybe you're past the point of inching. Maybe you're running towards them. Maybe you're wallowing in them. Wherever you are, it is not too late to seek refuge in Christ. Wherever you are, whether your prayer is redeem my life from the pit or lead me not into temptation, pray it right now. Ignore me if you must. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Rescue me from my sin and myself. Rescue me by never letting me walk down that path. After the worthless swineyard and the warnings of woe, Isaiah finally sees this. He sees the invading warriors. Verses 26 through 30, the invading warriors. Verse 26 says, He will raise a signal for nations far away and whistle for them from the ends of the earth. And behold, quickly, speedily they come. God's people being judged by a foreign nation, a nation far away. Oh, that was unthinkable to Israel. Even Habakkuk. Had a hard time believing it. 
Because the foreign nations were more wicked than Israel. And God knows this. If God sees the sin of his people, then you can be assured he sees the sin of the nations as well. Isaiah doesn't say which nation is going to invade Judah here. Most people assume it's the mighty Assyrians. It says they were swift. Nothing could stop them, verse 27. Not fatigue or sleep, not faulty equipment or clothing, such as belts, waistbands, sandals. And then verse 28. Their arrows are sharp, all their bows are bent, their horses' hooves seem like flint, and their wheels like the whirlwind. The horses, uh, excuse me, horses' hooves are so tough they don't even need horseshoes is the idea. They have their winter tires on. They're ready for battle. They're roaring, verse 29 says. Again, it's probably the Assyrians. But the important thing is that they are strong and swift and coming. God's people. And who can blame God for all this? Again, men of Judah judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? Isaiah has been hard to preach for me so far for many reasons. For example, you may read this and say... Sounds just like America, a nation that has left God behind. You might say it sounds like like the state of the church, and then you might think of sins the church has committed, ways that professing Christians have hurt you. You might think of other things, and all of it I say, maybe. Maybe this does describe some things of 2021. Maybe it does describe our country or the church at times. Maybe. Maybe. As you're thinking about that, have you ever said, you ever known anyone who said, ah, pastor, that was a great sermon. I wish that my friend, my parent, my son, whoever, wish my friend could have heard that. Once knew a pastor who said, every sermon you hear is first and foremost for you. Christ Jesus came to save sinners of whom I am The foremost, it's a faithful, trustworthy saying, Paul says. Your first job is to say, why did God want me to hear this? I have a pretty good idea why God wanted me to hear this week. I am not Boaz. Jesus is Boaz. I am Naomi. Glass half empty. Fearing more emptiness around the corner instead of trusting Jehovah Jireh to provide all I need and more. Why does God want us to hear Isaiah? Especially when it starts in such a dark place. Few suggestions. One, because without His grace, this doom and gloom is where we would all be headed. I once wrote a blog post. It was titled something like, Praise the Lord for Boring Testimonies. Boring Testimonies, I think it might have been, I hope my kids have a boring testimony. Testimonies of children who never knew a day when they didn't know Jesus. I told a story of a ministerial candidate. He told his testimony like this. God saved me from a life of sin, drugs, alcohol, sexual immorality, and so many other kinds of sin and misery. Wait for it. He saved me from all those things. By drawing me to himself at an early age. So that I never had 
to experience those things, which I surely would have experienced without His grace. Maybe you lived like a wild child and you wish that was your story. I've got a friend like that, a fellow pastor. And maybe that is your story and you don't realize it. You wouldn't have put it exactly like that. Why else does God want us to hear Isaiah related to that first idea? God sending us a warning is a sign of His love. We might forget this. If God knows disaster is coming, the bridge is out. And He stays silent. That would not be loving. Third, God wants us to hear Isaiah so that we realize He is in control of history. Is it sobering? Is it depressing that Israel, God's people, is being punished by a foreign, wicked nation? By people who do not worship the true God? It should be. But we should be comforted that God is doing it. God is in control. Not an accident. God signals for the foreign nations to come. He's ultimately in control of verses 26 through 30 and everything else we read. And that's not changed, my friends. God may send judgment upon those who claim to be His people, but only if they deserve it. And for those who are truly His, all of that will only make us draw closer to Him. And He promises protection to us from the worst act of His judgment. One commentator on Isaiah said this about God, the Lord of history. The authorities that exist, Paul tells us, have been established by God in the closing book of the New Testament. Points us with complete confidence to the day when God's lordship over the nations will be manifested in final judgment. He's saying the same thing I said in every single sermon about Revelation. Every title. Do you remember it? Jesus wins. Jesus wins. And if we are in Christ, we win too. We are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen indeed. Life may be stormy. Probably felt that way for Israel back then too. The ones who were faithful and the ones who weren't. Probably felt that way for Israel back then. For all this, his anger has not turned away. And his hand is stretched out still. But into that storm, God was sending a message of salvation. A prophet whose name meant the Lord is salvation. Despite the storm around them. God was offering Israel a lifeline to anyone who knew they needed it. God's hand was stretched out in judgment, true enough. But His hand was also stretched out to offer salvation. And for us today, His hand of salvation is stretched out still. Let us pray. Oh God, You are good, and what You do is good, and Your love for us never fails Oh, Father, may we not disregard your word and brush it aside, thinking that we are so much better. And God, may we not, may we not lay undue guilt upon ourselves, 
May we know that in Christ our sins are nailed to the cross and we bear them no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Father, be with us. Help us to cling to your good and precious promises, knowing that you will always cling to us and never let us go. This we ask in Christ's name. Amen.